played carol gun His rating was higher But from move 17 The king's side was mine Took my chances fast My rook was a knife Hello everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. He has more experience, but I won't lose again. Welcome back to Ladies Night. It's Jennifer Shahadi. Everyone has been talking about the Queen's Gambit, so this episode had to be about the series. If you've been following coverage of it, you've probably heard my general thoughts on it. I loved it. I've been interviewed by Vanity Fire and the New York Times, among many other media venues, and I'm honestly just blown away by all the positive attention chess is getting right now. Like, people get us in a way that they haven't before. Chess is something that people really need right now. The introspection, the delightful escape into a smaller world of 64 squares. As Beth Harmon said, a world that you can control. And right now, as we approach what might be a really difficult winter for many, what a great time for more people to take up this game. For today, I've decided to try something totally different than anything I've ever done on Ladies' Night. And it's inspired by a new project for U.S. chess women, the Mad Women's Book Club. I just started this with our women's committee chair, Dion Yango. And our club, the Mad Women's Book Club, is for adult women who want to discuss chess through a book that's either about the game itself or has themes that relate to intellectual adventures, and female empowerment. The name comes from the birth of the chess queen back in the 16th century when she went from being the weakest piece on the board to the most powerful. The queen before that could only move one square diagonally, so you can imagine the game was pretty boring. (laughs) Seriously, when the queen first became empowered, people called the game the mad woman's chess game, deriding the incredibly powerful queen that can now move as many squares as she wanted in any direction. Now you can just start from move one and checkmate your opponent in 20, 30 moves, 15 moves, maybe even four moves. Um, None of which was possible in the game before that. So they called that the mad woman's chess game for a little while. Crazy woman, hysterical woman, too powerful, too ambitious. Spoiler alert, that game eventually just became chess. So, This crazy woman that entered the game ended up making it better. And that is a perfect metaphor for how women, when entering new spaces, are often resented at first. You have the backlash, but then later accepted. 
Marilyn Yalom dived into this in her great book, Birth of the Chess Queen, and um, rest in peace to Marilyn, who was also the author of many other great books, like The History of the Wife and The History of the Breast. Um, she died a year ago, and we'll certainly be reading her book in a future edition of the Mad Woman's Book Club. We just had our very first session of the club. We talked about The Queen's Gambit, the 1983 Walter Tevis novel, and we also had a chess lesson based on some of Beth Harmon's episode one contest against Mr. Scheibel. And the idea there was to get the new players in the club to connect what they were entranced by on screen with actual chess moves that, you know, they hope to learn themselves. And because the series shows you Beth as she's getting better and better and better from a total beginner in the first episode and then stronger and stronger till we hit the last episode, Beth got obviously incredibly strong playing some games that were devised by none other than the 13th world champion, Gary Kasparov, who consulted in the film, along with Bruce Pandolfini. That's well chronicled in the November Chess Life magazine cover story by Bruce himself. Our U.S. Chess Women Girls Club was honored to have Gary actually on his first appearance talking in depth about his role in the Queen's Gambit, coming to our girls club room to discuss it, the games that he devised for the series, why he picked them, how they connected to the book. I can't do it justice here on the podcast, so definitely just go check it out on YouTube. We even had the director and co-creator Scott Frank at the session as well. It was definitely a pinch me moment, and I know the girls were very... You know, excited. I mean, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have Gary Kasparov busy your, your Zoom. <laughs> that was just amazing. And we'll give you a lot of insight into that the series reached in providing a secondary text. You know, you watch it for the acting, the cinematography, the sound, the drama, the suspense. And then you also, oh, the fashion. Yes, the mint dress, the black and white dress at the end. The white coat. I told you guys there were going to be spoilers. <laughs> the all white coat and the white hat almost makes me less dreading the winter. But then you can watch it again and look at those positions on the chessboard. Match them up. We know a lot of people have done this. Simon William, Levy Rosman, Agat Monter. They're, they're getting in there, dissecting those chess positions for you, identifying them. What I wanted to actually do in this podcast after this long introduction was to read you some of my favorite passages from the book. And you can kind of judge for yourself how they compared with the series. The book is best when it delves into best inner life. And it's amazing to read after watching the series as it gave me a lot of insight into the inspiration behind the filmmaking and the acting. But where the series really lifted the book to greater heights, and I already dived into this a little bit, is in the chess descriptions. Verbal or written explanations of chess games without actual moves can be a little tedious. As any chess coach can attest, who's had her students say, I moved my rook up, and then he moved his bishop, and then I went check, and he moved his king, and then I forgot. No, 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 we can't understand that. No algebraic notation to make sense of the directions makes it really tough. So, the screenwriter, co-creator, and director Scott Frank, with his work with Bruce and, and Gary, really made the chess pop in a way that I felt the book really couldn't. And that's not a real insult to the author as much as, I think, a little bit of a limitation of that form. 
unless you want to, you know, take the jump and put actual chess diagrams into the book, which I can understand if you're a best-selling novelist might, you know, scare some readers. So I, I get that would be tricky to do. The book was actually quite true to the series in many, many ways with, in fact, full lines of dialogue just lifted. I mean, clearly Walter Tavis had an incredible ear for dialogue and for making cinematic. Let's move on to the main event of this podcast where I can actually read you some of those passages from The Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis, now a number one Netflix series. Well, let's start with her very first encounter with chess because, hey, that was a beautiful moment in the series. Will you teach me? Mr. Scheibel said nothing, did not even register the question with a movement of his head. Distant voices from above were singing, bringing in the sheaves. She waited for several minutes. Her voice almost broke with the effort of her words, but she pushed them out anyway. I want to learn to play chess. Mr. Scheibel reached out a fat hand to one of the larger black chess pieces, picked it up deftly by its head, and set it down on a square at the other side of the board. He brought the hand back and folded his arms across his chest. He still did not look at Beth. I don't play strangers. The flat voice had the effect of a slap in the face. Beth turned and left, walking upstairs with a bad taste in her mouth. I'm not a stranger, she said to him two days later. I live here. Behind her head, a small moth circled her bar bulb, and its pale shadow crossed the board at regular intervals. Cinematic. You can teach me. I already know some of it from watching. Girls don't play chess. Mr. Scheibel's voice was flat. She steeled herself and took a step closer, pointing at, but not touching, one of the cylindrical pieces that she had already labeled a cannon in her imagination. This one moves up and down or back and forth all the way if there's space to move in. Mr. Scheibel was silent for a while. Then he pointed at the one with what looked like a slashed lemon on top. And this one, her heart leapt on the diagonals. So yeah, that was a pretty sweet description of her learning chess. Um, I like how they didn't include the knight in that one, <laughs> but they did in the series. Um, and instead of describing it as an L shape, um, she said one square forwards, one square diagonally. Interesting. I know there's some debate among beginners chess coaches about how to teach the knight. And so I don't usually teach a ton of beginners. I don't really have a strong position on that, but I like that scene. I mean, all the scenes in the basement were gold, obviously. It's funny, the basement, like, it functioned as a church in a way, right? Like the church of chess. It was a, it was a shrine to chess. And with all its imperfections, I mean, it's a basement. It's at the bottom. It's dark. It's potentially cold, small, crowded, but it's where all the magic happened. And, you know, even the lighting and the series and the way they kind of portrayed that basement, you saw that side of it. And that really drew me into the series right away. And so many people, because, you know, you can't really binge on a Netflix series if the first bite isn't good, right? So let's go to where she actually beat Mr. Scheibel for the first time. He looked at it sitting there, and then he reached out angrily and toppled his king. Neither of them said anything. It was her first win. All of the tension was gone, and what Beth felt inside was as wonderful as anything she had ever felt in her life. The scholars mate, 
The next Sunday, she blocked the scholar's mate with her king's knight. She had gone over the game in her mind a hundred times until the anger and humiliation were purged from it, leaving the pieces in the board clear in her nighttime vision. When she came to play Mr. Scheibel on Sunday, it was all worked out, and she moved the knight as if in a dream. She loved the feel of the piece, the miniature horse's head in her hand. When she set down the knight on the square, the janitor scowled at it. He took his queen by the head and checked Beth's king with it. But Beth was ready for that too. She had seen it in bed the night before. Guys, I don't know how that's possible. (laughs) How does the queen check from F3? I don't know. I don't know. Now I'm wondering if like, maybe maybe we're thinking E4, E5, queen H5 immediately, knight F6, queen takes E5 check, bishop E7, and then you get like the big attack from black. Maybe that's the one that they mean in the book. But anyway, let's let's uh, leave the uh, chess nerd over analysis and move to our next session, page 28. And this is from the simultaneous that she gives to the high school students. Great scene in the series, great scene in the book as well. The surprising thing was how badly they played, all of them. In the very first games of her life, she had understood more than they had. They left backward pawns all over the place and their pieces were wide open for forks. A few of them tried crude mating attacks. She brushed those aside like flies. She moved briskly from board to board, her stomach calm and her hand steady. At each board, it took only a second's glance to read the position and to see what was called for. Her responses were quick, sure, and deadly. Charles Levy was supposed to be the best of them. She had his pieces tied up beyond help in a dozen moves. In six more, she mated him on the back rank with a night rook combination. Her mind was luminous and her soul sang to her in the sweet moves of chess. The classroom smelled of chalk dust and her shoes squeaked as she moved down the row of players. The room was silent. She felt her own presence centered in it, small and solid and in command. Outside, birds sang, but she did not hear them. Inside, some of the students stared at her. Boys came in from the hallway and lined up against the back wall to watch the homely girl from the orphanage at the edge of town who moved from player to player with the determined energy of Caesar in the field, a Pavlova under the lights. There were about a dozen people watching. Some smirked and yawned, but others could feel the energy in the room, the presence of something that had never been in the long history of this tired old schoolroom had been felt there before. What she did was at bottom shockingly trivial, but the energy of her amazing mind crackled in the room for those who knew how to listen. Her chest moves blazed with it. By the end of an hour and a half, she had beaten them all without a single false or wasted move. She stopped and looked around her. Captured pieces sat in clusters beside each board. A few students were staring at her, but most avoided her eyes. There were scattered applause. She felt her cheeks flush. Something in her reached out desperately toward the boards with dead positions on them. There was nothing left there now. She was just a little girl again, without power. Wow, I really love that in the book. And in the series, it was really well done too. I like how they interspersed the scene of her playing with her explaining it to Mr. Scheibel later while eating the chocolates that she was also awarded in the book, by the way. And that scene with her eating all the chocolates, I really liked it because we rarely see Beth eat in the series. And in this case, 
I also like that she gave Mr. Scheibel the rest of the chocolates because, you know, there's a lot of, I think, sadness for the way that Mr. Scheibel wasn't acknowledged until after his death in the series. And I don't know, to me, just it was a very sweet scene, literally her like gorging herself and all those delicious chocolates in celebration of her victory. The next scene was from her first chess tournament. This is after she won her first three games of the event. Beth went to the girls' room and washed her face and hands. It was surprising how grubby her skin felt after three games of chess. She looked at herself in the mirror, under the harsh lights, and saw what she had always seen. The round, uninteresting face and the colorless hair. But there was something different. The cheeks were flushed with color now, and her eyes looked more alive than she had ever seen them. For once in her life, she liked what she saw in the mirror. Amazing, right, in the book? that she's supposed to be a not very pretty little girl. Obviously, Hollywood treatment had to make all the characters like super good looking for the most part. I mean, it is understandable, but I think that element of the book is quite interesting. They claim Beth as doll. They explain, describe her as like a doll plain little girl. And I think that it played into her character and the descriptions here in that she was a goddess when she played chess, a beautiful little girl. And that it was because of that lighting up of her entire body and soul from the chess game. We saw that a little bit in the series as well, because obviously Anya is beautiful. But in the scene in episode seven, there's one scene in which she kind of like rises above like female beauty to almost being a perfect like marriage of beauty on the surface and beauty in the inside. I'm sure if you've seen the series, you know what I'm talking about. It's also a clip that I showed in the Gary Kasparov video because that was a game that he scripted. Another thing that you might have heard if you are watching a lot of media on this book in the series is that in the book, she was a, she was a brown haired, right? Plain brown hair, obviously redheaded, in the series, which Anya also described in her interview with um, Chess Life magazine editor John Hartman, that's on our YouTube channel as well, that she felt that Beth had to be a redhead for the depiction of this on the screen. And the reason was so that Beth would stand out wherever she was, not only as a female, but also as the only one with red hair. Hey, it really worked. So great call from Anya. Let's move on to getting her period at her first chess tournament. She went directly to the girls' room and discovered that she had begun to menstruate. For a moment, she felt, looking at the redness in the water below her, as though something catastrophic had happened. Had she bled on the chair at board three? Were the people there staring at the stains of her blood? But she saw with relief that her cotton panties were barely spotted. She thought abruptly of Jolene. If it hadn't been for Jolene, she would have had no idea what was happening. No one had said a word about this, certainly not Mrs. Wheatley. She felt a sudden warmth for Jolene, remembering that Jolene had also told her what to do in an emergency. The pain in her abdomen had eased. She was menstruating, and she had just beaten Golden, 1997. That's his rating. She put the folded paper into her panties, pulled them up tight, straightened her skirt, and walked confidently back into the playing area. I love that part because when I wrote Chess Bitch, I actually talked a little bit about how there were some people who wondered if women might have a disadvantage compared to men or 
girls versus boys because menstruation during certain days of the month would cause them to play worse. Now, I don't want to discount any woman who suffers from like cramps or heavy periods and says like, actually, that's true, especially in a rapid game, if I have to get up, you know, and use valuable time. But I I think that it's also one of those things that can be a bit of like a self-perpetuating poke at women and their abilities. There's also health-related problems that might only apply to boys and men. And like when we kind of like look for things like that, it's damaging unless it just comes from a place of, of pure love and support, not a way of like explaining why girls may not be as talented as boys. Like, I think that's not right. And I, I like how in this description, she's like, yep, I just started my period and I just beat it an almost expert. I also think that it's interesting to me, of course, this book and the screenplay was, were both written by men. I love reading, but I haven't really read a ton of descriptions that I can remember of girls and how they started their periods. So I, I can't really rank this one right now. I mean, it doesn't seem horrible to me, though. Like, I'm okay with it. Now that I probably lost all the guys listening, just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to move on to our next part, page 102. This was one of Adia's favorite parts that she also pulled out to talk about in the um, Mad Woman's Book Club. Benny Watts was in his 20s, but he looked nearly as young as Beth. He was not much taller either. Beth saw him from time to time during the tournament. He started at board one and stayed there. People said he was the best American player since Morphe. Beth stood near him once at the Coke machine, but they did not speak. He was talking to another male player and smiling a lot. They were amiably debating the virtues of the semi-slav defense. Beth had made a study of the semi-slav a few days ago, and she had a good deal to say about it. But she remained silent, got her coke, and walked away. Listening to the two of them, she had felt something unpleasant and familiar. The sense that chess was a thing between men, and she was an outsider. She hated the feeling. That's an incredible part. I think that us chess players, poker players as well, do this. When we're around people who don't play the game, we're often guilty of, you know, occasionally just diving into jargon and esoteric talk that can kind of leave them out. And sometimes it's gendered if it's a situation where it's mostly men who are playing the games and they bring girlfriends or wives with them, then that can feel particularly problematic in a culture where sometimes women and girls don't get to talk as boys and men. I felt like this quote really resonated with me. Sometimes when I'm in a situation where people don't know that I'm a games player, I'm a poker player and start talking about these things and just like leave me out of the conversation. Like I can't have anything intelligent to say about it. It really doesn't happen that often, sure, but I can certainly relate to it as I'm sure a lot of listeners can and probably of both genders too. Like there's always a situation where you're underestimated or people don't know what you know and that can be frustrating, but it can also feel good in a way that you have these secrets. I think what separates it for me from when does it feel good and kind of like almost like weirdly satisfying, because I've definitely had moments like that where it's kind of like funny and weirdly cool to have people underestimate you. But then there are other times where it really feels rotten. And I think the times where it feels rotten are usually when it's from people in power and you have this kind of like sense of all of the damage in society that is created by people underestimating people based on stereotypes and appearances. 
when it goes beyond like this like individual experience of like being underestimated and like somehow it just kind of clicks in your head that this is multiplied everywhere and like there's a smart powerful point person doing it and like there's a limit to what you can do to stop it like your personal experience and maybe proving them wrong is going to prove insufficient in actually ridding the world of this so yeah like i definitely felt like both sides of that like haha funny cool and like oh no this is not only upsetting to me but it's like upsetting on a macro level cool part we had a fun discussion about that in our our book club and i thought that was well written as well okay we're gonna skip ahead a lot i'm gonna skip you guys to page page 207 with uh, mr scheibel and you know i know this is a lot of people's favorite scene or saddest scene too moving but also quite sad gary kasparov said that it was his favorite and um in the, uh, the session that he did for the girls club. I don't know. It actually surprised me. I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have guessed maybe one of the chess scenes that he helped script because he did such a great job, he and Bruce. So actually like kind of pretty modest thing from him, I would say. So here it is. The moment when Beth goes into the orphanage after, you know, Mr. Scheibel dies. She walked down the empty hallway to the doorway at the end. When she pushed it open, there was a light on below. She went slowly down the steps. The chessboard and pieces weren't there, but the table he had played on still sat by the furnace, and his unpainted chair was still in position. The bare ball was over it. She stood looking down at the table. Then she seated herself thoughtfully in Mr. Scheibel's chair and looked up and saw something she had not seen before. Behind the place where she used to sit to play was a kind of rough partition, made of unplanned wooden boards nailed to two-by-fours. A calendar used to hang there. With scenes from Bavaria above the sheets for the months. Now the calendar was gone and the entire partition was covered with photographs and clippings and covers from Chess Review, each of them neatly taped to the wood and covered with clear plastic to keep it clean and free of dust. The only thing in this dingy basement that was. There were pictures of her. There were printed games from Chess Review and newspaper pieces from the Lexington Herald Leader and the New York Times and from some magazines in German. The old life piece was there, and next to it was a cover of Chess Review with her holding the U.S. Chess Championship trophy. Filling in the smaller spaces were newspaper pictures, some of them duplicates. There must have been 20 photographs. You find what you were looking for, Jolene asked when she got back to the car. More, Beth said. She started to say something but didn't. Jolene backed the car up, drove out of the lot, and turned back onto the road that led to the highway. While they drove up the ramp and pulled onto the interstate, Jolene gunned the VW and it shot ahead. Neither of them looked back. Beth had stopped crying by then and was wiping her face with a handkerchief. Yeah, very moving part. And I think a reminder to everyone to let the people you care about and that have led you to the paths that have given you happiness, fame, fortune, whatever it is, to thank them while they can still smell those flowers. Okay, but this is fiction. (laughs) Don't cry too much. All right, I am going to skip ahead again to page 226. This was the part where she adjourned the game with Lushenko and saw some men analyzing the game in the hallway. There were three men in shirt sleeves standing around a table that sat between the couches. On the table was a crystal decanter and three shot glasses. In the center of the table was a chessboard. 
Two of the men were watching and commenting while the third moved pieces around speculatively with his fingertips. The two men watching were Tigran Petrosian and Mikhail Tal. The one moving the pieces was Vasily Borgov. They were three of the best chess players in the world, and they were analyzing what must have been Borgov's adjourned position from his game with Duhamel. So in the, in the book, it was um, Borgov's game. I think in the series, it was Lushenko's game, but Borgov was helping. That was a really cool scene. I think a lot of people liked that. People who didn't play chess um, were a little confused by it. They were like, whoa, is that like cheating? Even kids who like had never really heard of adjournment. So we're like, wow, what was that? But no, like it was legit. Like that was part of the whole deal with adjournment. And that's why people brought seconds with them. So that had to be explained. But I, I really like that scene too, because it tied into later Beth understanding that she did need help from her friends, whether it was Jolene or Mrs. Wheatley with all of the emotional support and the financial support, or of course with um, the men who helped her with her moves, even if they weren't as good as her. And I thought that was like a really great thing about the series that it showed this kind of quasi family that chess creates and how even if you were a higher level chess player than someone or a lower level chess player, you often have things to give each other, whether it's from the game itself or even just tangentially related. Because it's such an intense game and there's so much disappointment and triumph that what you might need from your friends in it can really vary tremendously. Next part, and I think this will be my last one actually, is on page 241. This is from that final game against the end boss, Harmon Borgov. And if you listen to my girls club session with Gary Kasparov, um, you'll know that Scott Frank really wanted to cast Gary as Borgov. Can you believe it? I know. That's a crazy image, isn't it? Anyway, let's hear how Walter Tevis described that final game. When she advanced the pawn to the seventh rank, she heard a soft grunt from him as though she had punched him in the stomach. It took him a long time to bring the king over to block it. She waited just a moment before letting her hand move out over the board. When she picked up the knight, sense of its power in her fingertips was exquisite. She did not look at Borgov. When she set the knight down, there was... Complete silence. After a moment, she heard a letting out of breath from across the table and looked up. Borgov's hair was rumpled and there was a grim smile on his face. He spoke in English. It's your game. He pushed back his chair, stood up, and then reached down and picked up his king. Instead of setting it on the side, he held it across the board to her. She stared at it. Take it, he said. The applause began. She took the black king in her hand and turned to face the auditorium, letting the whole massive weight of the ovation wash over her. People in the audience were standing, applauding louder and louder. She received it with her whole body, feeling her cheeks redden with it, and then go hot and wet as the thunderous sound washed away thought. And then Vasily Borgov was standing beside her, and a moment later, to her complete astonishment, he had his arms spread and then was embracing her, hugging her to him warmly. Beautiful. I love the line. She received it with her whole body, feeling her cheeks redden with it and then go hot and wet as the thunderous sound washed away thought. Washed away thought. Wow. What a way to describe the applause after she used her brain to win the game. It was over and now she could kind of just enjoy that applause. I like how that was described. I know I said earlier I, I didn't like the descriptions of the chess games as much in the book as in the series, but normally they were really good in the beginning of the game and the end. It was just kind of like the description of what happened that was a little harder to convey in words alone. And the final scene 
you know, uh, the director's favorite, many people's favorite, many people's favorite outfit, that beautiful white coat, was as such. About halfway down the first row of concrete tables, an old man was sitting alone with the pieces set up in front of him. He was in his 60s and wore the usual gray cap and gray cotton shirt with the sleeves rolled up. When she stopped at his table, he looked at her inquisitively, but there was no recognition on his face. She sat behind the black pieces and said carefully in Russian, would you like to play chess? Wow, so that's a little different than the series as well, but has that same spirit of how she wants to reconnect with chess lovers. And whether it was from the basement in the orphanage or the parks in Moscow, in the end, it's a family that's bonded by a love and passion for the game. And that opens up so many opportunities to all of us, even if not everyone has the talent to become the number one chess player in the world, like Beth Harmon. That was one of the strongest messages from the series, as I really liked um, my friend uh, Shonda Prescott Weinstein, who's also going to be featured in one of the, the book clubs as she's coming out with a book called The Disordered Cosmos, made that point strongly to me that that was one of the things she liked most about the series. And I love that because that's something I think that people don't really get about our culture. And now maybe they will, that even though chess is an individual game, we create these families. And then, of course, the other thing about the series, which I've already talked about in many interviews, is that it shows us the power of the flow experience and how chess can be a perfect flow experience that leads you to a form of consciousness that you might not experience in anything else. It's so perfect for our times. It's so perfect for girls and women who are often, you know, more distracted, burdened with more emotional labor, sometimes blessed. Sometimes that emotional work is a fun, but okay, they're sometimes more distracted by social media, especially for teenagers. All of that in the series, all of that messaging is, is really beautiful. And yeah, there's some negative aspects of the messaging, which, you know, for parents listening or for young people listening, it's, it's not a series that's appropriate for very young people to watch. But so many positives about the series and the new fresh ways in which it's showing our game are resonating all over the world. And I'm so proud to be a part of the, the movement and the publicity around it. And just to be a part of somebody who's been working a women's chest right now, it's a very proud moment for us to see how much people care about this series and how much it moves them. So for any women listening to this or to any men listening to this who have women in their life who are interested in getting involved in the Mad Woman's Book Club or a series of beginners women's chess lessons that we're starting, please reach out to me. I'm also going to link to the the Google form for our next session in the show notes. That's going to be a book by a friend of mine, Maria Konnikova. She is a fantastic writer. She's a writer for the New Yorker magazine, and she is also a poker champion. But the book we're reading is actually called Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And she wrote this one a few years ago. I thought it was really perfect for our class because we're trying to tackle intellectual themes, not only themes that direct, direct immediately to chess, right? So not every book's going to be a chess book. And that's intentional because we want people to realize that even if they don't play chess yet, they might love this book club. Definitely tell your friends about the Mad Woman's Book Club. Tell them about this podcast. If they do want to hear The Queen's Gambit and some of the favorite passages read by me, direct them our way. 
And for all of our new listeners who got into chess from the Queen's Gambit, big hello to you. And I am so glad that you're a part of our chess family now. Till next time. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The US Chess suite of podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and the Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong. After slightly advantage I had nothing but my dear Capablanca You tell me we'll learn more